Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibu Gwani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Marlene Eisenhower. Marlene is a senior risk specialist at Coveris with more than 30 years of combined medical legal experience in a variety of settings. With a background in professional liability litigation and regulatory compliance, Marlene has extensive experience advising clients in the healthcare industry regarding compliance with state and federal laws and risk reduction techniques. One side note, we're very close to the folks at Coveris, which is one of the largest medical malpractice insurance companies. They invested in osmosis, and we've had a really great time getting to know many of their leaders, including Greg Hansen, Lynette Matza, Mary Ursel, and, and many others. So with that, Marlene, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thanks, Shiv. Glad to be here. So I think you're the first person we've had on the podcast who has a specific background in risk mitigation for healthcare professionals. Can you tell us a bit about how you got into a medical legal area? Sure. So even as a little kid, I was really interested in science and medical type issues. So after a few years in college, I enrolled in a nursing program in my hometown. And back then, in the early 1980s, it was a whole lot easier to get into nursing school. I just kind of trotted down the lane and, and enrolled, and I was accepted. But at the time, I didn't know a whole lot about what nurses did. I didn't have any nurses in my family. So I guess that I sort of enrolled kind of as a lark, just because it seemed interesting to me. As the years went on and I got more experience, I got a lot more interested in the idea of medical mistake, the concept of medical mishap, and how they were mitigated and remediated after the fact. You know, the investigation, the conversations with the family, dealing with the staff, the lawyers, all of that. So that's what eventually got me interested in law school. And then during law school, I did an internship in a risk management department in a hospital, which was really the beginning of my interest in risk. After practicing as a medical malpractice defense lawyer for years and years, I finally ended up in risk management consulting and risk management. So that's that's how it all, all started, kind of on a lark, I'd say. That's pretty cool. And that actually echoes the story I've heard from many people at Coveris who started their careers as healthcare professionals, and I got very interested in the, in the legal aspects of it. So can you give our audience a bit of a sense of the scope of what risk managers are involved with beyond just uh, patient safety issues, or, or maybe that's enough? Sure. No, no. I think risk management has really changed over the past couple decades. Back in the 1980s and the late 1970s, when I went to law school and nursing school, healthcare risk management was almost entirely reactive. It had to do with the process that occurred after an event, a medical mishap involving injury took place. And it was pretty much confined to just the clinical arena and the kind of the legal mop-up that took place after that event. Over the past couple decades, however, it's evolved into a process that's more proactive. So today, the focus in risk management is all about tracking and trending what goes on in an office or healthcare facility. And the idea is to look for trends, issues, lapses that tend to impact patient safety and then implement measures to fix them before those issues and lapses result in injury to a patient. So, you know, it's evolved much more, more from being a reactive process 
and responding to incidents and working with lawyers to more of a proactive process. So today's risk manager in a big facility might be involved in almost every facet of hospital operations from financial operations in terms of risk financing to human resources that impacts patient safety from a staffing perspective to, of course, the, the typical risk management topics that you think about like clinical operations and patient safety. That's fascinating. Thanks for explaining that uh, shift from being reactive to proactive. One of the major changes that we all know has been happening to the healthcare system is this evolution from the fee-for-service to capitated or bundled payment models, where I assume, you know, not only risk management, but also just quality of care and outcomes, patient-reported outcomes matters even more. Can you comment a bit about that as a driver for risk management? Has that led to those departments becoming even more important within healthcare systems? For sure. Now, you know, we talk about bundled payments, prospective payment, you know, where hospitals are paid based on quality of care and patient satisfaction. So, you know, again, it used to be that we had these rigid policies, procedures that were designed to produce an outcome that we desired, but now the outcomes that we're being measured on are are vastly different, and the outcomes now are based on how efficiently we can deliver the care and how patients respond to that delivery of care. So not only are doctors looking at evidence-based parameters, but now they're looking at efficiency-based parameters, which certainly impacts the idea of risk management and enterprise risk management throughout the facility, for sure. That's one thing that I think attracted us to Covaris in the first place, just because you know you all seem to have a strong focus, not just on the, the risk mitigation, being proactive, but education, right? Educating both the patients as well as the providers, you know, so hopefully the quality of care improves. And that's how I got introduced to you all in the first place is our mentors at MedIQ, Scott Weber and, and Jerry Hartung, wound up becoming part of Covaris, MedIQ did, and they had a very strong focus on risk management. Can you talk a bit about the role of education that you see, you know, what role does it play in risk mitigation and, and, and any specifics you can share around, you know, interventions, whether it's education or not, that, that you've seen in your career having an improvement in, in, in reducing risk? Well, I think that folks, you know, generally when there's an issue at the hospital that involves patient injury, the first reaction that folks have is, let's take a look at our policies, we'll revise the policy, and then we'll just educate everybody on the new policy. But education is just one of the pieces that contribute to patient safety, right? So you have to be not only educating your staff, but you have to be monitoring compliance. You have to be tracking and trending incidents. You have to have good staffing. You have to have good credentialing and privileging and all the other things that go into place. So education is just one very small part of a really big picture, but it's a huge part. So, you know, a lot of my time is spent on education with our customers. So not only telling them this is what you need to do in this particular case, but the whys behind it, because often the whys are the are the things that inform the situation in other other cases and other events. So education is huge. Yeah, I've been pretty impressed with uh, on the point of tracking and trending the database that Covira seems to have collected over the years. What are the most common causes of, of adverse events? Indeed, it actually was what we used to inform a Covaris osmosis risk management series that we created of what are the most likely reasons an OBGYN or an internist or a nurse would be involved in a, in a lawsuit. 
and we did that with Bob Hanscom and, and Amit Patel and others on, on your team. So can you tell us a bit more about how you got to Coveris, like the size and scope of the organization, as well as specifically the risk management team? Sure, sure. Incidentally, it's interesting because our risk management department in Coveris has just merged with our business analytics because we believe that there's so much to be learned in terms of risk management through an analysis of data. So we've we've combined those two so that we can provide more information data-informed implementation and methodologies to our risk management recommendations. So Covaris is one of the largest medical professional liability or medical malpractice insurance carriers in the country. We're headquartered in Boston. We write insurance in every state. We also have folks in London that write in the London market. We write medical malpractice coverage for all types of healthcare facilities and healthcare providers around the country. So nurse practitioners, PAs, physicians, dentists, in all different disciplines. As a result of that, we have a tremendous amount of data that we gather from past claims and past lawsuits. We also focus exclusively on medical malpractice. We don't do property liability or auto or anything like that. It's only healthcare risk. And so we have tons of expertise and resource in those areas. One of the great services that we offer to our policyholders is risk management support. Many of our smaller customers, especially small clinics or maybe a rural hospitals, don't have huge dedicated risk management departments. So they rely on their malpractice carrier, which is us, to help them out in this arena. So we have a team of risk management consultants that are located throughout the country that provide consulting services, education, we do a lot of education, and just general risk management support for our clients. So as a risk consultant, and by the way, I'm located in Portland, Oregon, so I have customers in Washington, Oregon, and California. As a risk consultant, I provide education, might perform assessments in various areas of the hospital or clinic. I might help with developing policies and procedures that our risk managers are struggling with. But one of the primary roles in my job is consulting, which involves answering risk management questions or addressing concerns that my clients might have. So for example, my clients may call me or email if they have a risk management issue that they're kind of struggling to resolve, or if they need a gut check on a risk management question, they may have had a, have a policy that they're not quite sure if it's worded correctly and they'll send it to me and I'll offer recommendations. A lot of times they just call me about an issue and we'll just brainstorm and discuss options on a particular situation. Yeah, that's quite a bit of things you do on a day-to-day basis. You know, I've seen a lot of insurance companies have been more proactive about uh, not just providing coverage, but then but then doing exactly what you're saying. I mean, ranging from car insurance companies that that try to educate their drivers how to be safer on the roads to health insurance companies that even buy their members Fitbits to make sure that they're getting more activity so that hopefully they don't have as worse results. And so similarly, it seems that Covaris has invested a lot in being more proactive for, for the clients you, you work with. You know, switching gears to this year and the reason we launched the Raise Line podcast about increasing healthcare capacity, COVID has changed a lot across the healthcare system. I'd love to hear in your experience, like what you've seen on your client side and what are some of the long-term changes you think will have to happen to the healthcare system and, and the risk management area moving forward? Yeah, so boy, COVID has just been a whirlwind for everybody in healthcare, not, you know, not just uh, 
all of the other folks in the country, but healthcare has really been hit hard by COVID. I'd also changed a lot of things from a risk management perspective, right? So before COVID, you know, the questions that we got were pretty varied. They were consistent. You know, they had to do with informed consent and leaving AMA, things like that, terminating patients from medical practice. But when COVID came, we found that there was really pretty remarkable uniformity in the questions that our clients started to ask. And it was really surprising. And we also decided that if our clients were asking these questions, other healthcare providers, not just the ones that were insured by us, were asking them too. So for the first time, we decided to share some of our resources with the public. So we started a, a COVID resource center that's available at Coveris.com, and it has all of the major questions that we got about COVID risk management recommendations that we've kind of posted to help the general public. They're open for public consumption. But with that being said, some of the major issues that emerged were, number one, telehealth everybody in healthcare, as well as anybody that pays attention to the stock market, has seen how telehealth has really boomed during this pandemic. I suspect that this increased use of telemedicine is going to be here to stay, especially if the government extends a lot of the expansions that they enacted this spring. They were enacted on a temporary emergency basis, but I suspect that they will become permanent. Many of the calls that we got early in the pandemic related to, to providers scrambling to ramp up their telemedicine capabilities, but they were doing it hastily and not quite in the right way. We still get these calls, but they're less frequent now as people are getting used to it. Some of the major issues that we were seeing and, and we frankly continue to see with telehealth involved for example, state licensing issues. So as a general rule, the practice of medicine occurs where the patient sits. So if you have a patient that you've been seeing, say, in the state of Utah, who you've been seeing in person, who goes back to, let's say, Washington State during the pandemic, the question is, can you continue to deliver care to that patient via telemedicine? The fact that the patient is located in Utah or Washington and your license in Utah could present a problem. So we're advising our folks to be really, really careful about state law issues to be sure that they're practicing as a licensed provider and in the scope of their practice. State law also regulates what kind of practitioners can practice telemedicine. So attention to state law is really important. One of the most overlooked and most important issues with telemedicine is the issue of informed consent. So a virtual visit is not the same as an in-person visit. We all know that. It's really convenient for patients, but there's a huge downside. So there are some things that you just can't evaluate and assess in a virtual environment like heart tones, lung sounds, things like that. So you really need to, at the outset, have a robust discussion with your patient to explore some of these limitations and to make sure that they understand and they're on board with that. Any other type of informed consent conversation or discussion, this conversation needs to be documented in depth in the medical record. A lot of our providers initially thought that telemedicine was just kind of like a FaceTime call, you know, that it wasn't much different than a FaceTime call. But just because you're providing medical care in a virtual environment doesn't mean that the quality of care or privacy and security should suffer. So 
have to have really suitable equipment and technology that's reliable, high quality, and secure so that the risk of malfunction and privacy breaches are minimized. There should also be a backup plan, you know, like with every other Zoom call or technology-assisted interaction, there's always the possibility that the whole thing could just go kaput. And, you know, and so in the middle of a healthcare encounter, you have to have a backup plan in case there's an equipment malfunction. That's fascinating. All those, all those examples for telehealth, and I'll let you finish and share some more other examples. But while we're talking about telehealth, I mean, what are, are the best practices for this? And, and are the large companies, you know, Teladoc and Mwell and 98.6 out in your area, are there best practices that they're following? And is it state by state or is there, are there federal guidelines for this? Yes, so there's federal guidelines, there's state guidelines. Um, I know that in Washington state, there are state guidelines as to what constitutes the practice of telemedicine and scope of practice and limitations on practice that are outlined by state law. And I know that the federal guidelines are readily available. The big companies like Teladoc, et cetera, I mean, these folks have it down, right? They've been doing this for a long time. The issues that we saw early on were for small, let's say small rural providers that didn't necessarily have contracts with these big players in the market were trying to do it on their own. And so that's where the problem came was from, let's say, just a standalone doctor's office trying to do technology with the equipment that they had. So yes, and there are a lot of guidelines that we have posted. Some of these recommendations, all of these recommendations are on our COVID resource site at coveris.com for sure. Okay, great. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll encourage our audience to check those out and learn more about it since so many of them are going to be providing telehealth if, if they aren't already. Mm-hmm. What other long-term changes do you think will happen as a result of COVID-19? Well, you know, I think that COVID's been, you know, in a way just a really destructive thing, but it's kind of been enlightening because I think it's uncovered a lot of the issues that we have in our healthcare system, our vulnerabilities. Maybe it's the silver lining to all of this is that those have been exposed so that we can change them. I think first that COVID has really uncovered the tremendous impact that the government and politics has on the health of the nation and our healthcare system. I think, you know, it highlights the need moving forward that not only do we need to educate the, the public about health issues, but there's a need for scientists and medical professionals to be not only present at the table, but to be heard. It also uncovered a certain rigidity in our healthcare system. You know, until COVID came along, our medical system was centered around the live face-to-face encounter The rapid adoption of telehealth was really pretty stunning, actually, and showed that our system really is able to flex and bend with the needs of an evolving healthcare consumer. I also think, you know, even my 85-year-old mother-in-law was really willing to hop on board the telehealth wagon. You know, it took her a little bit of time to get used to the technology, but even she was willing. So I think moving forward, we'll be able to see or we will see ways that technology is enhancing virtual medicine, especially at the point of care, and hopefully regulatory changes will allow to keep up with that mobile global culture. And I also think, you know, finally, we, as we saw our providers getting sick, falling sick with COVID, it exposed some staffing issues that are likely to become worse in the next couple decades. I mean, Everyone knows that we're facing a shortage of physicians and healthcare providers. And I think moving forward, it's going to be really important to learn how to maximize the potential of mid-level and allied providers in our system. And most importantly, to attract new people by the use of incentives to enter the healthcare arena. 
Couldn't agree more. I mean, that's the main reason we call this raise the line is how do we increase healthcare capacity? And our contribution to that is is training the next generation of healthcare workers as well as existing ones, raising the bar for existing professionals to, to practice at the limits of their scope. You know, especially as we see more NPs prescribing, you know, just require a doctor to prescribe. What are some incentives you had in mind? Like, what are some ideas? I don't know if you you all have considered those. Well, you know, some of the things that I've been reading about in the news have been really interesting, like some of the medical schools that are offering free tuition. What a great deal, you know, free tuition. I think that that in this day and age, you have to be you have to think long and hard about incurring a huge amount of debt to go into medicine, right? I mean, student debt is a huge deal. So lots of folks, lots of colleges are looking at offering tuition incentive or reduced tuition for medical students. I think, you know, loan repayment programs would be a huge incentive. I also, you know, during COVID, we also heard a lot about scope of practice issues, where, you know, we had mid-level providers who, in the face of extreme medical shortages, were asked to to cover, for example, CRNAs being asked to to act as intensivists, and so some of the scope of practice issues. So, you know, I'm wondering if more expanded scope and additional responsibility might appeal to folks. Maybe adjustments in salary, expanded scope, I don't know. I think in the end, I think it's going to be a financial incentive that draws people medicine. Yeah, I agree. And I think we're fortunate to work with a couple of the universities that have been able to provide free tuition, like NYU and Kaiser Permanente's med schools. And, you know, given that the median debt of a graduating MD right now is $200,000, that has implications of who goes into medicine in terms of diversity, where they practice, what specialty they choose, etc. So yeah, I think those are some really great thoughts. I know we're coming up in time. So I have two last questions for you. The first is, what advice would you give to current and future healthcare providers about meeting the challenges of COVID and beyond? So, you know, healthcare is changing really fast. It's going to change over the next couple of decades. And right now we're sort of on the poised on the brink of, of a time of transition where we're seeing the old guard move out, the new guard move in. And, you know, I hear a lot of frustration from, from new providers with some of the practices that are like hangers on vestiges of the past, you know, the technology issue, old medical procedures. But I would encourage folks that are new to healthcare to recognize that they're the people that are going to shape the future. I would also encourage them to recognize the incredible strength that they bring to the table in terms of innovation and their ability and comfort with social media, technology, artificial intelligence. These things are going to play a huge part in the future of medicine and are going to change the way that they interact with patients for the better, I think. And these folks are the people that are going to be able to implement that and change our system to be the system that they want to practice in. So I think, you know, to a large extent, the new generation is going to make medicine into what they want it to be. I would also, I suppose, encourage them to keep being innovative and look for ways to improve and streamline the way that we deliver medical care and embrace the team concept of medical delivery rather than the captain the ship model. That's some really, really great advice. And it echoes, I know for a fact, something Dr. Eric Topol, Dr. Sachin Jay, and two other guests we've had on the podcast have shared. My last question is, is there anything else you'd like uh, our audience to know about, about you, about Coveras, about risk management in general? I think that's a pretty easy question to answer. I think, you know, I get asked this a lot. If there's one thing you would tell people, what would you tell them, especially medical students? 
there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't have a conversation with somebody somewhere about the importance of documentation in the safe and defensible delivery of care. It's one of the most, by far and wide, one of the most widely requested presentations that I give to healthcare providers. You know, they spend a lot of time in medical school, nursing schools, teaching providers to deliver really good quality evidence-based medical care, but virtually no time is spent educating them on documenting the care that they deliver. So good documentation is a huge thing, not only for malpractice defense, but it's a patient safety tool. And I think to a certain extent, while the EHR has made documentation easier in a lot of ways with templates and drop downs. It's made it hard in other ways. So I suppose that that would be my one risk management wish for all healthcare providers is that they get really good training on documentation. That's some really great advice. And hopefully our listeners will take that to heart and, <laughs> and access some of the stuff that you put together, as well as the stuff that Coveris and Osmosis are collaborating on. So with that, Marlene, I'd really like to thank you for taking the time to be with us on the podcast and more importantly, for the work you do to protect our providers in the healthcare system. Great. Thanks, Shiv. With that, I'm Shiv Vivani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line since we're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>